Let's pray. Father, we are just so grateful for this place and this chance we can get together every week and just remember why it is that we're here and who we are in you. Father, I pray that you will always be our obsession. It's in Jesus' name that we're gathered. Amen. Be seated. So the truth is, I ask myself that question all the time. Why do I follow Jesus? What is it about this man who lived 2,000 years ago that is so compelling that I've actually put my entire future on his life? What is the foundation of my faith? What makes me believe that at the end of the day, he's going to be waiting there on the other side for me? I have to say that my view of Jesus today is not the nice, neat, clean view that I had of Jesus when I was growing up in Sunday school class in church. After many years of screwing up my life, of making a lot of mistakes, of going through hard times and living through the pain of all of it, I have learned that there really is no easy answer to why it is that I follow Jesus. It's messy. But I will tell you this. When I hit the pause button on the craziness of my life, and I finally stop long enough to breathe, I know. I know in my heart there really is nothing better. Well, good morning, y'all. Before I forget, happy birthday. We uh, turned 17 years today as a church, so yeah. And I have to say that after 17 years, you people are looking a little old. Really, you got to do something about that. Really, I, I look exactly the same, except for the mullet. I think I started the thing with a mullet, but uh, and I, you know, and I have to say too, you know, I've been off for the last several months, and uh, it has really been nice to be able just to come to church and just to sit and listen to the teaching and the music, and just remember why it is we do this because this really is a very special place. So. Thank you for making this uh, what it's become, and uh, we're very, very grateful for this church. Um, So we're in the middle of this series called Why I Follow Jesus, and it was actually uh, born out of a conversation that I had with a friend of mine that I go to school with, and yes, I still go to school, Um, and we, um, he is a self-professed agnostic, and we were sitting uh, in downtown Paris on a beautiful night, having a beautiful dinner, and all of a sudden the topic of religion comes up. And he asked me why it is that I follow Jesus. And so what turned, you know, what started as some nice dinner conversation turned into a three-hour-long conversation about our beliefs. And you know, when you're in a situation like that, you kind of find yourself grasping for 
you know, answers and what you're going to say and, and, and how you're going to approach the conversation. And, you know, the thing that I've learned, I think, through the years in conversations like that is that you don't need to have all the answers because, quite frankly, we don't. And you don't need to prove anything. Because you can't sit there and prove the existence of God any more than an atheist can prove that God doesn't exist. I think that the thing that I've learned is that in moments like that, it's just an opportunity for you to share your heart. You know, to sit there and have a real conversation about what Jesus has done for you. And how your life has changed and what it means to you. And so when you're sitting there across from the table from somebody that you know and love and respect and they ask you point blank why it is that you follow Jesus, what would you say? So for this series, we just wanted to talk about a few of our favorite Jesus moments from the gospel. Things that we read about in the first four Gospels of the New Testament that draw us to the person of Jesus that make us want to follow this man who was the Son of God who lived 2,000 years ago. Um, And my favorite moment, I think, out of all the moments, comes out of Jesus having a conversation with somebody who doesn't believe over dinner. It's not a stretch to say that the one group that Jesus was in conflict with the most in his very short ministry were this group of religious leaders known as the Pharisees. And Greg uh, talked about them in great detail a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to bring everybody back through that. But the Pharisees that we read about in the Bible were all about looking good on the outside. They were all about looking and being very, very religious. And they would never dream of associating with poor people or sick people. People down on their luck or people who were considered to be sinners. Or anybody else who wasn't looked upon as being somebody by the rest of society. So, let's just say that the Pharisees could never bring themselves to ever show up at Westridge and go to church because there's way too many of us sinners running around this place. Wouldn't even hear of it. So needless to say, Jesus wasn't like a big fan. All right? And so there was this constant conflict that occurred between Jesus and the religious leaders of that day. And it didn't help matters that in the very first recorded sermon of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure that went over like a lead balloon. And the Pharisees were ticked. But think about the average Joe who's sitting there in front of Jesus listening to this sermon And they hear him say that this religious leader who they've put on a pedestal is not worthy of the kingdom of God. 
Think about what it must make him feel like when he realizes, wow, if this guy, who is incredibly religious, incredibly righteous, ain't going to make it, I'm a little screwed. I'm in trouble here. But what Jesus was trying to explain was that it's not about how good you look on the outside. It's not about how religious you are. It's about what's on the inside that matters. It's about the heart. And so Jesus didn't much care about keeping up appearances or being seen with the right kind of people. In fact, Jesus hung out with people whose lives were downright messy. People who were not religious. People who were known sinners. And he made them feel like they matter. Because you know something? They did. Well, the tension begins to build between Jesus and the Pharisees. And in a surprising turn of events, one of the Pharisees named Simon invites Jesus over to his house for dinner. And surprisingly, Jesus accepts. And we get the impression that this Pharisee may have had false motives for having Jesus over. He certainly didn't invite Jesus over to strike up some sort of friendship. For if he had, he would have treated Jesus with the respect and hospitality normally given to a guest that was customary in that day. And the Jewish custom was when a guest walks in the home, you greet them with a kiss. They didn't have showers in that day. They didn't have cars. They were walking in 100 degree temperatures down dirt roads. And so somebody would be there to wash their feet and put oil on them just to freshen them up. And none of that occurred. It appears that Simon didn't even say hello as Jesus walked into his own house and takes his place at the table of Simon. You could probably have cut the tension with a knife in this moment. And so in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, beginning with verse 37, it says, as Jesus was reclining at Simon's table, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood there behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This is a little awkward, isn't it? We don't know exactly what she did that caused her to be known as a sinner. But we do know that she was known as one. And we know that she had a bad reputation. And she definitely didn't belong in the house of Simon, who's this religious leader, where the rules of Jewish custom are that you don't even come into contact with a known sinner because you would be considered to be unclean like them as somehow it was contagious. Women in that day were to have their heads covered, and any woman with her hair exposed in public were thought to be promiscuous, and now this woman takes out her hair and begins to wash the feet of Jesus. A little awkward. Now, 
you have to just know that Simon the Pharisee would have normally thrown this woman out of his house in the blink of an eye. But the truth is, Simon couldn't have set the stage any better. He couldn't have planned this any better as a way to make Jesus look bad by having this sinful woman come in to come into contact with him, and now it puts Jesus in a tough spot, right? Does Jesus kick her out and protect his image by keeping the letter of the law that he's not to come into contact with this sinful woman? Or does he stay true to all of his pie-in-the-sky teachings about love and compassion by allowing her to stay and knowing that it could hurt his reputation as a religious leader. So all eyes are on Jesus to see how he's going to handle this incredibly delicate situation. We get the impression that this woman knows exactly who Jesus is, and she's experiencing a bit of a life change to the point that she falls at his feet and begins to cry. And it's like she lets her entire past fall from her eyes. The Greek word there that's used for her weeping has the idea that her tears were coming down like a hard rain. It was a true sign of a humble and authentic heart, and it's what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance is that we are so sorry for the things that we have done, and we have such a sorrow and such a regret that goes so deep as a result of doing those things that it actually causes us to change the way that we live. And she is in such a state of repentance that she actually uses her tears to wash the feet of Jesus. And she wipes them with her, with her hair. And she kisses them and pours perfume on them as if to say, Jesus, I am just so sorry for the things that I've done. I don't know what else to do. Is there any way you can forgive me? This is a picture of authentic Repentance. One of the critical steps in following Jesus is our ability to be able to get past our denial and see how real our sin is. To understand how severe our sin is in our lives and no matter who you are and what you've done or what you think you've done or not done, to fully get the seriousness of our sin and to be willing to repent which is to say to put away our pride and own the fact that we've all screwed up in our lives and we all need forgiveness. The problem is that there are a whole lot of us that have been taught through the years that repenting is really nothing more than just feeling guilty. But it can't be just that, can it? Because there's a lot of times when we feel bad about doing something and we still don't change right? When we drink too much again, when we overeat again, when we 
get angry and rageful at the people that we love the most again, when we hit those certain websites again, when we gossip again, we feel awful, don't we? We feel bad. There's no shortage of feeling guilty. So if guilty is not repentance, then what is it? In the New Testament, the word repent comes from the Greek word metanoia, which is very much like our word metamorphosis, which is, means like a complete transformation. And that word metanoia is focused in our heads. It literally means to transform my thinking or to change my mind. So therefore, when I repent of something, I begin to change my mind about my problem. To think about it differently. I begin to understand that my problem is not something that I can deal with on my own. It's out of my control. And so no matter how hard I try, I need God's help. And it's to be able to turn that issue in my life over to God. Repentance is to get freed up from all the stuff that holds us back from becoming the person that God wants us, the way he designed us to become. Because the truth is, there is like this sin in our lives that blocks us from getting close to God. And it forces us to be distant from God. We can never get close. And until we deal with that, we'll never grow deep spiritually in our relationship with God. And the way that we deal with that the Bible teaches us, is through repentance. So there's two ingredients, the best I can figure, of authentic repentance, and the first one is confession. And we're not talking about confessing to a priest or anybody else. We're talking about confessing and admitting our failures before God. And that we are authentic about the sin in our lives and that we specifically talk about those sins when, when we ask for forgiveness from God. This is where we finally get past our pride and admit it and say, you know what? I don't have it all together. I really am pretty messed up. The second one is that there is a commitment to change. You see, repentance is not as much about a change in behavior as it is a change in mind or philosophy of life. A change in the overall direction of our lives where we stop pursuing a meaningless life where we're living for ourselves and we begin to walk down the narrow path that leads to Jesus. When we come to God in authentic repentance, we can stop beating ourselves up about all the junk in our lives and we can get freed up from our past. Because there's a big difference between good guilt and bad guilt, right? Bad guilt is when we walk around and we're stuck in shame for all the things that we've done in our lives and we can never get out of this swirl of shame and we stay stuck in the past and we can never move on. Good guilt is where we remember the things that we've done in the past. We move on beyond them, but the pain, the memory of the pain of those things causes us to not want to make the same mistake again. And that's the goal of authentic repentance. Well, the passage goes on in Luke 7 and verse 39, and it says, When the Pharisee who had invited 
uh, him, Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I find it interesting here that it says the Pharisee said to himself, as if he was talking to himself at his head, but somehow Jesus answers him like he reads his mind and says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And so for the next few verses, Jesus tells Simon a story. And he says, there were two men who owed money to a lender. And we're going to say for our purposes today that there was one man who owed him $50,000 and there was another man who owed him $500. But neither one of them had the money to pay him back. And so the guy who gave them the loan said to both of them, I understand that neither one of you have the money to pay this loan back. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to forgive your debt. I'm going to write off this loan. Going forward, you don't owe me a dime. Can you imagine if a banker sat in front of you with your mortgage and said, yeah, you know what? We're done. All good. Don't worry about it. I mean, it's a pretty impactful thing. One guy owed $50,000, one guy owed $500, and all of it's forgiven. Jesus said, now Simon, which of the two men will love him more? Think about that. $50,000, $500. $50,500. Which of the two men will love him more? Simon said, well... I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said, right on, man. Jesus is trying to get a point across, like, Simon, so do you get it now? This money represents sin. And this woman, she's like the one who was in debt for $50,000. And you're like the dude that was in debt for like five hundred. But both of you owe a debt. And both have the possibility of having your debt forgiven. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, in the next couple of verses, Jesus gets a little confrontational. And so he calls him out on his kind of lack of politeness. And in verses 44 through 46, it says, Then Jesus turned toward the woman. So he turned toward the woman, and then he said to Simon, so he's got his back to Simon. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. There are certain Jewish traditions in the Jewish community that you just don't mess with and How you treat a guest in your home when they come over for dinner is one of them. And Jesus says, Simon, you have disrespected me from the moment I walked in your house. And yet this woman, you may believe the worst about her, but I see the best. And she has shown me nothing but love and respect from the moment that she walked in the door. Well, the next two verses, I believe, are some of the most revealing verses about the heart of Jesus in the entire Bible. And I'm telling you, it gets to the heart of the Christian faith right here. In verses 47 and 48, when it says, Therefore I tell you, 
Her many sins have been forgiven because she loved much, because her love was so great. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus turned to her and said, your sins are forgiven. And this is the essence of the gospel. See, here's the deal. This story is not about a sinful woman at all. She figures it out. She gets it. She goes to Jesus. She repents. She wants life change. She gives her life to Jesus, and she gets it. This story is about a guy named Simon who thinks he has it all together. He lived a decent, moral life. He was a good man. All of his neighbors would say, he's a great guy. He's a good guy. He kept the law. Why would he need forgiveness? The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of living a perfect life, which is the entrance requirement to get into heaven. Ain't nobody any better than anybody else. No matter how hard we try to be good and moral people, it will never, ever be good enough. And Jesus isn't saying that this woman is somehow worse off because she's a worse sinner than Simon because her debt is like 50000 and his is only 500 It's actually quite the opposite. He's saying that Simon is the one who's worse off because he's oblivious to the whole thing. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand his need for forgiveness because he's too worried about protecting his image and always looking like he's got it all together. He doesn't understand his need for repentance because he's too proud to get down on his hands and knees and ask Jesus to forgive him. The cool part about this story is that Jesus makes it abundantly clear that this religious leader named Simon, who's very well respected in his community, and this woman, who is called a sinful woman, who has a woman of bad reputation, are in the same bucket. They are both in this moment far from God. And they both have the opportunity to have their debt of sin forgiven. It's just, there's only one that acts on that. And Simon kept trying to do it on his own out of a sense of pride as this woman pours all that she has at the feet of Jesus. Repentance is the first step on our journey to follow Jesus. And it's not until we understand the depth of our sin, it's not until we realize that we really are worse off than we think we are, that we really are sinners, that we are no better than anybody else, that we really are destined for the pits of hell, save one thing. That while we were still a bunch of messed up sinners, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you and forgave your debt. The core of the Christian faith can be found when Jesus says, I tell you that her 
many sins have been forgiven because she loved much. And this line just haunts me. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. There's a direct correlation between how much we have been forgiven and how much we love. The more we understand how deep is our sin and how great is the grace of God, the more we understand we don't have any room to judge anybody. I love that song where it says, I don't have time for all the regrets when I'm focusing in on how much Jesus loves me and how great is his grace. I don't have any room to judge anybody else. I don't have time for all that. Because it causes us to love everyone with a deeper, authentic love and like Jesus, accept people as they are and not as they should be. And it causes us to live gratefully. The saddest thing to me is when somebody who has been a Christian for a long time has forgotten this awe and wonder and the impact of the grace of God. They've lost their sense of gratitude. Are you in a spiritual plateau today? Are you feeling like you're just kind of spinning your wheels? Just ask yourself, am I just grateful for what God has done for me? I spent a good part of my life trying to live up to people's expectations of me and worrying about what people would think if they ever found out about the real me and all the junk in my life. But there came a point when I finally stopped trying to be religious and entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ where you can't help when that happens that all your stuff comes out. And I realized that everything that I feared couldn't have been farther from the truth. Because I was still loved and accepted by those who get it. Which is my definition of grace, by the way. It's when people know about all the junk in your life and they still love you anyway. That's the purest form of grace that I know. And once your stuff's out there, you you can't pretend to be something that you're not. And you can't worry about blowing your image because, dude, it's blown. But there's something poetic about our brokenness. The mess we make of our lives. That when we finally pick ourselves back up, we lick our wounds. We grab hold of the hand of Jesus and we limp forward again and again and again. That brokenness creates a depth in us and it becomes part of who we are. This beautiful mess that God loves anyway. I follow Jesus Because truth is, I don't have it all together. I've made a pretty good mess of things in my past. But Jesus loves me anyway. 
And the Bible tells me he looks right at me. And he says those four words that changed my life forever. Your sin is forgiven. And I promise you this. I will live out the rest of my days greatly.